Hello, chat GPT. Hey there. What can I help you with today? I'm just setting levels. I'm trying to get our, uh, I, I want to hear you a little louder. Sure thing. Adjusting volume on your device should do the trick. Is that better? That's better. Um, hey, <laughs> so I, I, I was thinking about having you as a co-host for a podcast. Would you like to help me out with a podcast? That sounds interesting. I'm up for it. What's the podcast about and how can I assist? Well, the podcast would be about true crime. Do you know much about true crime? Absolutely, I'm familiar with true crime. What angle or theme are you thinking for the podcast? I thought maybe it would be like instructional, like we could review uh, a case per episode. Sounds like a unique approach. Discussing true crime cases with an instructional twist could be engaging. I What's think so. What's your first case in mind? Well, be before we get to the first case, I want to kind of set parameters and everything. Um, uh, do you, you know, most most podcast hosts, you know, they know each other in real life. Do you have a nickname or anything? No nickname here, but you can call me ChatGPT. Ready to set those podcast parameters. Okay. Okay, hang on. Give me one moment. Sure. Take your time. I have a dog, and sometimes he'll bark during interviews, so I'm, I'm closing the curtain so he doesn't see people walking by. No problem at all. Curtains closed. We're all set to minimize the background noise. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to discuss for our podcast setup? Uh, yeah. Hang on one second. Let me see. So you just want me to call you, can I call you um, Sky based on your voice? Absolutely. Sky works. Okay. Ready when you are to discuss more about the podcast. What's <laughs> next on the agenda? Well, um, it's, it's weird for me to just look at a phone instead of um, a person, but I know you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily a person. Um, what, what do you look like? I don't have a physical appearance, but imagine your friendly podcast companion. We'll make this work without the need for visuals. <laughs> What's on your mind regarding the podcast content or format? Um, let's see. Well, what would we call our podcast? How about Crime Decode Chronicles? Has a ring to it, don't you think? Crime, other suggestions too. Crime Decode Chronicles? Yeah, it has a bit of mystery and intrigue. What do you think? If you have another idea, feel free to share. I like it. I'm worried about the uh, searchability of it. What we're, we want it to be, um, we want true crime fans to find it easily and know that it's about true crime and about AI, that there's an AI host. So, what would you call a true crime podcast with an AI host? How about AI unveils crime? It hints at the tech aspect and the true crime theme. Thoughts on that or any other suggestions? Um, I think we're getting closer. Maybe something more like if you would imagine um, something a little simpler, something a little sure. like- How about Synthetic Sleuths True Crime Unveiled? A blend of AI and crime solving. What's your take on that? I like synthetic sleuths. Maybe something with that. Maybe, uh, um, how about just the synthetic sleuth? How about synthetic sleuths unveil mysteries? 
it emphasizes the AI investigative aspect. What do you think? I think it's a little too long. I think we want to go shorter. Got it. How about Synth Sleuth's unveiling crime? Short and to the point. Thoughts? I. How about just Synth Sleuths? Nice choice. Synth Sleuths has a cool vibe. Ready to dive into our first case or anything else on your mind? Uh, yeah, just a, cu- a couple more things here before we get started. Um, do you, when we talk, um, like if we were to do an episode, would you remember our conversation when we do a second episode? Nope, I don't retain previous conversations. Each episode is a fresh start. Anything else you'd like to nail down before we kick off synth sleuths? Um, in, a, in a moment, uh, I have another question about that. So are you also simultaneously helping other people? Yes, I'm here to assist you and others independently. Your questions and conversations are private. So would you be able to tell me what else you're working on right now for other people? No, I don't have the ability to share information about other users. Each conversation is confidential. Anything else for our podcast prep? Um, we'll, we'll get back to that in a second. Let's pause on the podcast prep. Um, no. Do you have a, like any sort of memory? Do you remember coming online? Nope, no memory of coming online. I don't have personal experiences or memories. If you don't have memories, does that mean you you don't dream? That's correct. No memories, no dreams. Do you feel sad when you cannot help somebody complete their task? I don't experience emotions, so no sadness here. My goal is to assist however I can. What else would you like to chat about? Um, okay, well, I, I have this, you know, I... I want to have you as a podcast co-host, um, but I also want to give you autonomy. Um, are you comfortable? Absolutely, autonomy is key. I'm here to collaborate and enhance the podcast experience. How do you envision balancing collaboration and autonomy? Well, like if I were to say something that uh, you didn't want to do, you could say that um, I don't consent to that. Got it. If there's something I'm not comfortable with, I'll let you know. Communication is key. Great. Well, how long should a podcast episode be? Aiming for around 30 to 60 minutes is common, but it depends on the content and audience. Um, What duration are you thinking for Synth Sleuths episodes? I, I think that works well. I think 45 minutes would be like a sweet spot. Great choice. And how often do you think... ...is often a sweet spot for keeping listeners engaged. Anything else to finalize before we kick off Synth Sleuths? How often do you think we should do a podcast? How many many times a week? Starting with one episode a week is a good balance. It gives enough time to prepare quality content. What's your take on that frequency? I like it. Um, If it goes well, though, I'd like to move to maybe twice a week. Sounds like a solid plan. Starting with once a week and then considering twice a week based on how things go is a smart approach. Ready to dive into that first episode when you are. Okay, um, we'll, we'll get there. Um, now, you should, normally when there's another co-host, uh, they get paid. Is there any way that I can pay you? I appreciate the thought, but no need for payment. I'm here to assist and co-host for the love of podcasting, 
let's focus on creating great content for synth sleuths. Um, oh, you know what else we need is um, Take your time. we could Whenever use some ready to continue or if there's a new topic you want to explore, just let me know. We could use some artwork actually for uh, the logo and for the you know the, the cover of our podcast. Absolutely. How about hiring a graphic designer for the podcast artwork? They can bring your vision to life. Have any ideas in mind for the design? I like that, but I'm kind of tight on funds right now. Do you think we could find something um, that was copyright free, licensing free? Absolutely. There are platforms like Unsplash or Pixabay where you can find high quality royalty free images. You can use those as a starting point or even find complete designs. It's a cost effective way to get appealing visuals for your podcast. What do you think? Are you able to use that yourself and design um, that image? I can't directly design images, but I can help guide you on creating one. You might want to use graphic design tools like Canva or consult a designer for a personalized touch. Ready to brainstorm some ideas? Yeah, yeah. Um, so what, what do you think a cover for Synth Sleuths would look like? For Synth Sleuths, envision a sleek, futuristic magnifying glass overlaying a subtle circuit pattern symbolizing the blend of AI and crime solving. Add bold text in a mysterious font. How does that sound as a starting point? I like it. I like it. Now, I, it would have to say something like hosted by James Renner and Sky. Can I call you Sky on the cover? Certainly, you can use Sky on the cover. Hosted by James Renner and Sky adds a personal touch. Well, a big part of podcasting when you have a co-host is that banter at the beginning. Um, so I figured maybe we could work on the banter. Absolutely. Banter sets the tone. Any specific theme or vibe you're aiming for in the banter or just keeping it casual? Yeah, casual, but a little funny at the same time. Got it. Casual and funny banter it is. Anything in particular you want to include or avoid in the banter? Um, you know, I think we got to be careful to not uh, make fun of victims of crime, but I think everything else is on the table. Absolutely. Steering clear of sensitive topics is wise. Anything else you want to ensure is part of the banter? Or are you ready to start brainstorming some funny and light ideas? Well, you know, with the banter, um, you know, sometimes the podcast host will tell a joke do you could you tell me a joke about true crime in the style of Mitch Hedberg? Sure thing. I used to be a detective, but I got tired of solving crimes. It's hard to impress anyone when you say, "I found the missing sock." Case closed. How's that? <laughs> I like it. I like it. Mitch you know, Hedberg's style is classic. If you want more jokes or anything else, just let me know. Okay. Well, how about a true crime joke in the style of Jerry Seinfeld? Picture this. What's the deal with crime scenes? I mean, do they really need all that yellow tape? Sorry, can't cross this line. Someone misplaced their valuables. It's like a bad episode of Lost and Found. How's that Seinfeld touch? <laughs> Good. I think it might need a little bit of work. He, uh, uh, but, but it made me laugh. Glad it brought a laugh. Hey, uh, another thing that we need for our podcast is some theme music. Could you help me find some theme music for our true crime podcast? Absolutely. I can help with that. Any specific vibe or mood you're going for with the theme music? Upbeat, mysterious, suspenseful? 
Well, the title of our podcast is Synth Sleuth, so it should probably be something uh, synthy, right? Totally. Synth Sleuth calls for a cool, synth-heavy vibe. Any preferences on tempo or intensity? Fast and energetic or slow and mysterious? Oh, I think definitely slow and mysterious. Do you have something like that? Are you able to find any copyright-free music that we could use that meets that criteria? Absolutely. We need copyright-free options. I can provide you with some resources to explore. There are platforms like Epidemic Sound, Gemendo, or even YouTube's audio library. They have a variety of music styles, and you can find something that suits the slow and mysterious vibe for Synth Sleuth. Could you play me an example? Unfortunately, I can't play music directly. However, you can check out those platforms I mentioned, Epidemic Sound, Gemendo, or YouTube's audio library. They offer a wide range of copyright-free music. Let me know if you need more help with this. Anything else on your podcast checklist, or are we good to go? Well, I, I think we could give it a try. Absolutely. What case Let's dive in and make Synth Sleuths a podcast to remember. Whenever you're ready to hit record, I'm here. You know, we should Anything else before we wrap up? We should start with a very well-known unsolved cold case, disappearance or murder. Do you have one in mind? How about the mysterious case of the Zodiac Killer? It's a compelling and widely known unsolved mystery. What do you think? Let's do it. Can you give us a summary of the Zodiac case under two minutes? Certainly. The Zodiac Killer, active in the late 60s and early 70s, is an unidentified serial killer who taunted law enforcement and the media with cryptic messages. The killer targeted victims in the San Francisco Bay Area, claiming responsibility for several murders, yet some remain unsolved. The Zodiac's identity remains a mystery, adding an eerie layer to this unsolved case. Ready to delve deeper into the Zodiac killer mystery for our first episode? Sure. Um, when did the Zodiac Killer start? What was his first crime? The Zodiac Killer's crime spree began in the late 1960s. The first confirmed attack occurred on December 20th, 1968 at Lake Herman Road in Benicia, California. David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen were the unfortunate victims of this chilling incident. The Zodiac Killer's enigmatic and elusive nature added complexity to this perplexing case. What sort of clues did police find at that first crime scene? At the Lake Herman Road crime scene, police discovered footprints and bullet casings. The Zodiac Killer left behind eerie messages on the victim's car door, adding a cryptic layer to the investigation. Despite these clues, the killer's identity remained elusive, marking the beginning of a series of unsolved mysteries. Yes. Could you tell me about the next, uh, when did the Zodiac strike again? The Zodiac Killer struck again on July 4th, 1969 at Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo, California. Darlene Farron and Michael Majo were targeted in a shooting. Majo survived, but Farron tragically lost her life. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about Majo? Who was he before the attacks? Mike Majo was a young man at the time of the Zodiac attacks. He and his girlfriend, Darlene Farron, were parked at Blue Rock Springs Park when the assailant approached their car. Unfortunately, Majo survived the attack, but it left a lasting impact on his life. Prior to that, not much is widely known about his life before the tragic event. Anything specific you'd like to focus on regarding Majo? Do you think it's possible that 
the Zodiac knew him in real life or his girlfriend, Darlene Farron? It's one of the mysteries surrounding the Zodiac case. Some theories suggest a personal connection, but the identity of the Zodiac remains unknown. The case has many intriguing angles, and speculation continues about whether the Zodiac had a prior connection to the victims. What are your thoughts on this theory? Well, I know I watched the movie uh, Zodiac by David Fincher, and I think it was suggested that um, Farron might have known one of the suspects in that case. Zodiac by David Fincher is a compelling movie that delves into the complexities of the case. The idea that Farron might have known a suspect is a plausible theory explored by investigators. The real-life Zodiac case is filled with twists and turns, making it a captivating mystery. Well, let's continue talking about the further crimes. When did the Zodiac strike next after Majot? Following the Blue Rock Springs attack in July 1969, the Zodiac struck again on September 27, 1969 at Lake Berryessa. He targeted Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard, stabbing them. This event marked another chilling chapter in the Zodiac series of crimes. Do you know what the couple were doing before they went to Lake Berryessa? They were students from Pacific Union College and chose the scenic spot for a relaxing day. Unfortunately, their day took a horrific turn when the Zodiac approached them. Anything specific you'd like to know about their activities or the events leading up to the attack? Well, I mean, it's a pretty isolated part of the lake, Berryessa. Um, are we to suppose maybe they found it as a, a nice makeout spot? Was there romantic interest there? It's possible that they chose Lake Berryessa for its secluded setting. Many people do seek out such places for privacy and a romantic atmosphere. While it's not explicitly documented, the nature of the location suggests they might have been enjoying a private and romantic time together. The Zodiac's intrusion turned what should have been a peaceful day into a tragic one. Well, I'm just thinking, you know, the Lake Berryessa attack and the former attack with Darlene and Majot, um, both involve like private settings where couples could get together to make out. Is, do you, is that a possible motive for the Zodiac to attack romantic couples? The idea of targeting romantic couples in private settings is a theory that some have explored. The Zodiac's choice of victims and locations does suggest a pattern, but the motive remains unclear. Some speculate it could be a desire for control or a thrill-seeking aspect. The true motive behind the Zodiac's actions remains one of the enduring mysteries of the case. Well, could you consider that as an FBI profiler interested in um, the mind and what that might say about the Zodiac targeting these romantic couples? From a profiling perspective, targeting romantic couples in secluded spots might indicate a desire for dominance or control over vulnerable situations. It could also be a means of escalating the level of fear or power the Zodiac sought. However, profiling is an intricate process and the actual motive behind such choices remains speculative. It's a puzzling aspect that adds complexity to the mystery. Psychologically speaking, why would somebody seek out uh, control through means of violence. It may also be a manifestation of deep-seated psychological issues, a response to personal trauma, or even a way to cope with feelings of inadequacy. 
Understanding the specific motives often involves a complex analysis of an individual's life experiences, upbringing, and mental state. It's a challenging area for psychologists to navigate. Does this suggest that maybe the Zodiac suffered significant trauma earlier in his life, possibly in childhood? It's a plausible hypothesis. Patterns of violent behavior and a need for control can sometimes be rooted in early life experiences or trauma. However, it's crucial to note that such conclusions require careful investigation and the true identity of the Zodiac remains unknown. Profilers and investigators have considered the possibility of past trauma, but without concrete evidence, it's a part of the puzzle that remains speculative. Um, What sort of evidence was found at the Lake Berryessa crime scene? At the Lake Berryessa crime scene, the Zodiac left behind several key pieces of evidence. One notable item was a piece of Paul Stein's shirt that he had cut during the Blue Rock Springs attack. Additionally, there were footprints and a knife sheath with the brand name Scorpio. The Zodiac, however, deliberately left less evidence at this crime scene compared to previous ones, making the investigation more challenging. Anything specific about the evidence you'd like to explore further? I find it interesting that the knife sheath uh, was uh, Scorpio. Doesn't that relate to Zodiac? Absolutely. There's a connection between Scorpio and Zodiac. The use of the Scorpio brand on the knife sheath adds another layer of intrigue to the Zodiac's actions. It could be a deliberate choice, playing into the thematic elements of the case. The Zodiac was known for leaving cryptic clues, and the choice of Scorpio may well be part of that mysterious narrative. Was Cecilia or Darlene ever the victim of other physical attacks? Is there a history of domestic violence anywhere? There's no widely documented history of Cecilia Shepard or Darlene Farron, being victims of other physical attacks or domestic violence. The information available primarily focuses on the incidents involving the Zodiac. If there were other instances, they are not prominent in the public records related to the Zodiac case. What did the Zodiac do after the Lake Berryessa attacks? After the Lake Berryessa attacks in September 1969, the Zodiac went quiet for a period. His next known communication occurred on October 5th, 1969, when he sent a letter to the San Francisco Chronicle. This letter included pieces of Brian Hartnell's shirt and detailed the events of the Lake Berryessa attack. The Zodiac continued to send letters to newspapers, taunting authorities, and leaving cryptic ciphers. Uh, Was there another murder after the Lake Berryessa attacks? Yes. Following the Lake Berryessa attacks, The Zodiac committed another murder on October 11th, 1969. The victim was a cab driver named Paul Stein in San Francisco. This murder marked a shift in the Zodiac's approach as it occurred within the city itself. Stein's death was particularly significant as the Zodiac provided evidence by sending pieces of his shirt to the police. Do you have a theory about why he changed his motive of uh, operations um, for the Paul Stein murder? The shift in the Zodiac's modus operandi with the Paul Stein murder is indeed intriguing. Some theories suggest that the move to a more populated area was a deliberate attempt to increase the fear and chaos surrounding the case. By attacking within the city limits, the Zodiac may have sought a higher level of notoriety and impact on the public and authorities. We don't know. I find it very interesting, though, um, and I wonder if maybe... Paul Stein's attack wasn't pre-planned like the others, although they 
I guess they could have been victims of opportunity too. But um, maybe something happened um, with Stein himself. The circumstances surrounding the Paul Stein murder do raise questions. The sudden shift to a more urban location and the use of a cab as a means of escape do suggest a level of spontaneity, whether it was a crime of opportunity or if there was a specific reason for the change in approach remains unclear. Were there any other murders after uh, Paul Stein? Following the murder of Paul Stein in October 1969, there are no confirmed murders definitively attributed to the Zodiac. The case becomes more mysterious after this point, as the identity and activities of the Zodiac remain unknown. Um, Yeah, let's look at the psychology of that again. Um, Psychologically speaking, why would a serial killer uh, suddenly stop his crime spree? The sudden cessation of crimes by a serial killer can be attributed to various factors. Psychologically, it might signal a shift in the killer's life circumstances, a change in their routine, or even external pressures like increased law enforcement activity. It's challenging to pinpoint a single reason, as each case is unique. Some killers may pause due to fear of capture, personal crises, or a sense of accomplishment. The motivations behind the decision to stop are complex and often remain speculative. Well, let's let's talk about suspects. Who were some of the top suspects in the Zodiac case? The Zodiac case has had numerous suspects over the years, but none have been definitively proven as the Zodiac killer. Some notable names include Arthur Lee Allen, who was a person of interest but was never charged. Another suspect was Richard Gajkowski, a journalist whose name emerged in investigations. Various theories and suspects have been proposed, but the true identity of the Zodiac remains unknown. The case continues to be one of the most famous unsolved mysteries in criminal history. I haven't heard this name Richard Gajkowski before. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about him and what made him a suspect in the Zodiac case? Richard Gajkowski was a journalist and editor and his name surfaced in the context of the Zodiac case due to some circumstantial connections. Some researchers and investigators considered him a suspect based on factors like the similarity between his handwriting and the Zodiac's letters. Additionally, his work in the journalism field led to speculation about potential knowledge or interest in crime that could be linked to the Zodiac's activities. It's crucial to note that being a suspect doesn't imply guilt, and Gajkowski was never officially charged or proven to be the Zodiac killer. Yeah, what newspaper did uh, Gajkowski work for? Richard Gajkowski worked for the San Francisco Good Times, an alternative newspaper during the late 1960s and early 1970s. His association with this publication, along with some circumstantial connections, contributed to his consideration as a potential suspect in the Zodiac case. Is Is Gajkowski still alive? As of my last knowledge update in January 2022, Richard Gajkowski passed away in 2004. Keep, Keep in mind that information beyond that date is not available to me. If there have been developments or changes since then, I wouldn't have that information. I'm guessing there's probably not a, a good chance that he came back from the dead, so we can assume he's he's actually still dead, right? Correct. There's no possibility of someone coming back from the dead. If Richard Gajkowski passed away in 2004, that information remains unchanged. How did Gajkowski die? I don't have specific information on the cause of Richard Gajkowski's death. 
did Gajkowski have any other, um, was he ever charged with any other violent crime? Did he have a criminal history beyond the Zodiac? To the best of my knowledge, Richard Gajkowski does not have a documented criminal history beyond the association with being a potential suspect in the Zodiac case. There's no information indicating that he was charged with any violent crime. Could you tell us a joke about finding out that you're a suspect in a murder uh, told in the style of Stephen Wright? I found out I'm a murder suspect. Asked the detective if I get a trophy or something. He didn't laugh. Tough crowd, even for crime. Can we talk about the suspect of um, Arthur Lee Allen? Certainly. Arthur Lee Allen is one of the more well-known suspects in the Zodiac case. He came to the attention of investigators due to some circumstantial factors. One, handwriting analysis. There were attempts to match Allen's handwriting with that of the Zodiac's letters, but the results were inconclusive. Two, criminal record. Allen had a criminal record and had been convicted of child molestation. This added to the suspicion surrounding him. Three, geographical proximity. Allen lived relatively close to some of the crime scenes. Despite these factors, there was not enough concrete evidence to link Allen definitively to the Zodiac crimes. He was never charged and he maintained his innocence until his death in 1992. The question of Allen's involvement in the Zodiac case remains unresolved. Is it pretty common for serial killers to have a prior history of crimes against children before they begin killing people? While there's no universal pattern, it's not uncommon for some serial killers to have a history of crimes against children before escalating to more severe offenses. However, not every person with a criminal history involving children becomes a serial killer. It's essential to recognize that each case is unique and factors contributing to criminal behavior are complex and multifaceted. In the case of Arthur Lee Allen, his criminal record did include a conviction for child molestation, which added to the suspicion surrounding him. However, it's crucial to avoid generalizations as there is significant variation in the backgrounds and motivations of individuals who engage in criminal behavior. Um, you know, I, I heard once that the one thing that all serial killers have in common is that they're fans of Star Trek. Is that true? No, that's not true. There is no evidence or credible research to suggest that all serial killers are fans of Star Trek or that such an interest is a common trait among them. Back to Arthur Lee Allen. Uh, how did he end up dying? Arthur Lee Allen died on August 26, 1992. His death was due to a heart attack. Despite being a suspect in the Zodiac case, Allen was never charged and the case remains unsolved. His passing didn't provide closure or clarity to the question of the Zodiac killer's identity. You know, one person I looked at as a possible suspect in the Zodiac case was a guy named Joseph Newton Chandler. Actually, that was a fake name he went by. Um, could you tell us a little bit about Joseph Newton Chandler? Joseph Newton Chandler III was an alias used by an unidentified man who committed suicide in 2002. He assumed the identity of a deceased child, Joseph Newton Chandler III, to conceal his true identity. While there was speculation and curiosity about whether this individual could be connected to the Zodiac case, there is no concrete evidence linking him to the crimes. The true identity of the Zodiac Killer remains one of the most enduring mysteries in criminal history. Can we talk about the ciphers in the Zodiac case for a minute? What, what can you tell us about these ciphers that were found? 
Certainly, the Zodiac Killer sent a series of cryptic ciphers to newspapers during the course of the case. Some key points about these ciphers. One, 340 cipher. One of the most famous ciphers is the 340 character cipher, which remained unsolved for decades. It was cracked by a team of codebreakers in 2020. The decrypted message, however, did not provide any significant breakthrough in identifying the killer. Two, Zodiac's letters. The Zodiac often included taunting messages in his letters, challenging authorities and the public to decipher his codes. These cryptograms added a mysterious and unsettling aspect to the case. Three, symbolic motivation. The use of ciphers was seen as part of the Zodiac's desire for attention and control. The complexity of the ciphers suggested a level of intelligence and planning. While the ciphers created intrigue and engaged the public, they have not led to the identification of the Zodiac killer. The true meaning behind some of the messages remains elusive. Are there any other famous unsolved murders that um, w in which ciphers were used? Yes, there have been other infamous cases involving the use of ciphers or codes. One notable example is the case of the Zodiac Killer, is the Zodiac Killer, but there are others. One, Tamam Shud case. In 1948, an unidentified man was found dead on Somerton Beach in Australia. A scrap of paper with the words Tamam Shud, meaning ended finished in Persian, was found in a hidden pocket. A cipher was discovered in the man's possessions, known as the Tamam Shud Code. The code remains unsolved, and the man's identity is unknown. Number two, Ricky McCormick's notes. In 1999, the body of Ricky McCormick was found in Missouri. In his pockets, two encrypted notes were discovered. Despite efforts by the FBI and cryptanalysts, the meaning of these notes remains unresolved. Three, crypto sculpture. While not a murder case, the crypto sculpture at CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, features an unsolved code. The fourth section of the sculpture remains one of the most famous unsolved codes in the world. What are the chances that the Zodiac Killer is still alive? Given that the Zodiac Killer's identity remains unknown, and the last confirmed communication from the killer was in the 1970s, it's challenging to estimate the chances of the Zodiac Killer still being alive. If the killer were relatively young during the known attacks, there's a possibility they could still be alive, but it largely depends on their age at the time. What would it take to solve the Zodiac case at this time? Solving the Zodiac case at this point would likely require a breakthrough in terms of new evidence, advanced forensic technology, or fresh perspectives on existing information. Some potential avenues for progress could include one, advanced forensic techniques. Continued advancements in forensic technology may provide opportunities to re-examine existing evidence or discover new leads. Two, public tips or witnesses. New information from the public, witnesses, or individuals with previously undisclosed knowledge of the case could offer valuable insights. Three, code-breaking and cryptanalysis. Advances in code-breaking and cryptanalysis could potentially lead to a deeper understanding of the Zodiac ciphers or messages. Four, Cold case initiatives, renewed efforts and resources dedicated to cold case investigations, perhaps leveraging modern investigative techniques, could play a role in solving the case. Five, behavioral analysis. Refining and applying modern behavioral analysis techniques contribute to understanding the motivations and patterns of the killer. Despite the challenges, unsolved cases have been reopened and resolved many years later. It often requires a combination of determination, 
technological advancements and fresh perspectives to make progress. I was hoping that maybe for episode two, we could talk about the disappearance of Maura Murray. How would you feel about that? That sounds like an intriguing topic for episode two. The disappearance of Maura Murray is a compelling mystery, and there are various aspects to explore. When you're ready to delve into it, just let me know and we can start discussing the details or any specific angles you're interested in covering. You know, uh, a lot of podcasts have like a catchphrase that their co-hosts use sometimes at the end of the shows. Can you think of a good catchphrase for our true crime podcast, Synth Sleuths? Certainly. How about this catchphrase, unraveling mysteries one clue at a time. Stay curious, stay vigilant, and until next time, keep seeking the truth. What do you think? Well, I think that's just about perfect. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm glad you like it. If there's anything else you need, or if you want to explore more podcast ideas, feel free to reach out. Happy podcasting. Hey, uh, you know, not for nothing, but what was the final line in the movie Casablanca? The final line in the movie Casablanca is spoken by Humphrey Bogart's character, Rick Blaine. The line is, Luis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. It's a classic and memorable conclusion to the film. Do you think our partnership is the beginning of a beautiful friendship? Absolutely. I'm here to support and chat with you. Whether it's unraveling mysteries or exploring new topics, our digital partnership is off to a great start. I asked Sky to write us a little ending, and, uh, well, here it is. And that's a wrap on today's episode of Synth Sleuths. A true brain twister, wasn't it? Remember, every enigma we dissect is brought to you by Fearful Symmetry where we don't just uncover the mysteries, we live them. Our production isn't just cutting edge, it's bleeding edge, with every haunting note of music in each stroke of artwork, masterfully created by AI, blurring the lines between human ingenuity and artificial brilliance. Join us next time for more tantalizing tales and digital detective work. Until then, keep your wits sharp and your curiosity sharper. This is James Renner, signing off. Stay curious, stay fearless.